Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Thank you very much, Jenny. Thank you uh, all, all for coming very much. Uh, it's great there's so many people here. Um, this is sort of going to be a 50, 45-minute rant with slides. <laughs> it's going to be fairly fast, and that's kind of deliberate. There's going to be some bits I'm going to gloss over a bit, but all the slides will be made available. In fact, this is being uh, filmed as well, should you want to go through, repeat the kind of torture again, <laughs> if, you want, if you want to do that. Before I start, I want to talk about, there's at least three very large elephants in this room. The first, and I will talk about two of them now. One of the large elephants in this room is that I'm going to basically be quite critical of managers, of organizations, of consultants, of ed educators, and of researchers. Welcome, all of you. <laughs> I'm joined by managers, I'm joined by consultants, educators. So that's the kind of uh, the big white elephant. I'm going to be quite critical. And I was, of course, on these occasions, what you should say is present company accepted. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to let you make up your own mind, okay? Whether, you, whether or not you think what I'm talking about applies to you or not. It's your, it's your kind of decision, if you like. The other kind of slightly, well, slightly smaller white elephant is I've got very little evidence with which to support most of what I'm talking about. Uh, this is a paradox and something I'm kind of working on, but I haven't really got much evidence. I'm sorry about that. Okay, so... Uh, what is the, the problem? So I'm going to first talk a bit about what evidence-based practice is and do that fairly quickly to get onto the issue of why uh, we are more evidence-based in the way we manage. It's not a single problem, it's sort of many different problems, such as that managers make very limited use of academic evidence, for example, uh, that they make use of maybe other forms of evidence in quite a limited way. Managers feel that academic research is quite uh, irrelevant so do actually a lot of academics. We'll come to that later. Uh, research and evidence being produced is not kind of being used very much by anybody. Uh, managers not trained how to use evidence. Nobody seems particularly concerned about this. So it's not one particular problem, but it's kind of a range of interconnected problems. Why aren't people too concerned about this? Well, it could be because we're all kind of perfect. It could be that's why. We've just actually maxed out on being brilliant. So there's no need to do anything at all to improve ourselves. It's probably not that. I think it's because it's nobody's particular fault. So it's nobody's fault, nobody gets the blame, and then nobody does anything about it. So in a sense, academics blame practitioners. And my, like, if, in inverted commas, journeys, everyone has to be on a journey now since reality television. But my journey in this is that I actually started off, I guess, as a PhD student and a master's student before that, being very critical of practitioners, including managers, thinking, aren't they silly and stupid? Don't they know about this evidence? And what they do makes no sense, because actually there's lots of evidence to show it's rubbish. And so it's very much a kind of top-down, here's the evidence, you use it, get on with it, what's wrong with you? And I've kind of completely flipped now for, for numerous reasons, but one of them is because uh, academics are actually not very evidence-based in their own practice either. So it's kind of pop-calling the kettle black, and I think it applies to all of us, which is partly the reason for doing this presentation this way. Also, the other thing, the main thing here is I'm going to talk about the way institutional incentives reward other things. So it's not individuals to blame, it's not groups, it's the institutions we work in, whatever role we take, and it's the fact that we're rewarded for not doing this. And I'll talk about that a little bit as well. Who thinks it's a problem? Well, I do. Uh, traditionally, the Academy Management, which is the biggest professional body for management academics, over 20,000 members, most of their past presidents always give their annual presentation saying it's a problem. So Don Hambrick talked about what if the Academy mattered. It doesn't, still doesn't much. Uh, Anne Huff talked about different modes of research, trying to make it applied. Denise Rousseau, more recently, talked about evidence-based management. A few management academics are also concerned in this, people like Fefferman Sutton, Lawland Ryans, and so on. So there's a bit of concern among some people. And there was this book, Handbook of Evidence-Based Management, that came out last year. These are indicators, I guess, of some interest in, in this concept. 
But it's important to bear in mind that evidence-based management or evidence-based practice is just one of the many proposed solu solutions to those lists of problems. It's certainly not the only one. I'm not saying it's the best, but it's the one I'm interested in at the moment. Who else is concerned? Well, Michael Skopinka, writing the Financial Times, is certainly concerned. He points out in this that most former US presidents, uh, at the time he was writing, George Bush was president, but most other presidents and presidential candidates actually all had law degrees. And it was interesting, the fact, that nobody, apart from George Bush, had an MBA. Uh, or any management education. Uh, and from Harvard, by the way. So much for rankings. Okay, uh, and also later on, Michael Skopinka also talked about the, the, the business school still ignored. He talked about the fact that his column produced more reaction than anything he'd written in 30 years. And most of it was from academics saying, yes, you're right, businesses ignore us. Um, yeah, and he also talks about when law schools publish, lawyers read them. When law schools put on conferences, lawyers show up. When chief executives pay little attention to what business schools do. So there's a range of people who think that range of problems is something to be kind of concerned about. What is evidence-based practice? This is the really simple underlying logic. So practitioners make decisions and judgments about what to do, interventions, and usually those decisions are based on different kinds of evidence. And the simple argument is that using little evidence, or evidence not, is not very valid, is likely to lead to poor outcomes and using better evidence. That's kind of it. It's not big, it's not clever, it's not new, it's actually not that interesting. Okay, so what's the issue here? Is that it? Well, it kind of is it. Uh, it's sort of obvious. Yes, it is completely bleeding obvious. Of course it's obvious. Uh, what's the big deal? The big deal is it's not happening very much. That's, that's the kind of the big deal. And why not? As I say, because I think all of us are rewarded in most of our institutions and most of what we do for doing other things apart from this. And that's the kind of thesis I'm trying to put forward this evening. It's important also to bear in mind that it's not really weird to use evidence. So when people hear the word evidence, they probably they sometimes go, ooh, spooky, you know, randomized control trials, science, you know, space, or something. It's not weird to use evidence. So everyday decisions like what film should I watch, what hotel should I book, do those little uh, plug-in alarms that deter rights of mice and rats were all those kinds of questions. They don't, by the way, but all those questions. <laughs> we think they work, but that's just... They don't. Uh, but they're all kind of uh, questions we ask. And if you want to know about films, we have resources. IMDB, I'm sure some of you use it. We have Rotten Tomatoes, okay? And what is interesting is that culturally, we see more concern collectively that we put good information about films on websites that everyone can freely access than good information about management practices that seem to be effective, which is quite a sort of chilling thing in a way. Also, TripAdvisor, yeah, you can use it to book hotels and other things. It's terrible for restaurants, uh, yeah. I wouldn't use it for that. Also, many of you may look at which, you know, you're pretty middle-class people here, you're anxious about getting the best stuff, and you may look at which and buy things in this way. And, of course, what you tend to do, I don't know if any of you would actually spend £939 on a washing machine. Now, you either have to really like doing washing, or you've got a lot, or you're just really into washing machines. But typically what we do with this kind of information, this kind of evidence, is we do a trade-off. We look at the percentage figures, and then we kind of go down, and we wait until we find a kind of trade-off, which for me is probably about that, but then I think Bosch is quite nice, so I might get a Bosch. I wouldn't pay that much, anyway. But it's not weird to use evidence, is the point. Timing the Bosch, it's really nice. Okay, thank you. A good set of top set, the top. Another source of evidence, which I have to scrutinise carefully. In medicine, what's happened is this idea of evidence-based practice and management is not the same as evidence, that's not the point. It's been around for probably about 20 years. It started with the BMJ publishing an editorial called Where is the Wisdom? When estimated in that editorial, only 15 to 20% of all medical interventions are based on solid medical evidence. Now, for management practices, I don't know what that figure would be. I have no idea. I don't think it would be higher. I don't think much lower. So however bad you might feel as a manager, you know, you probably know worse than doctors or the medical profession. 
So this went on, and by the, you know, some years later, it's pretty well established as a way of doing training, a way of thinking about how you practice medically. But what is evidence-based management? It's basically similar, and it actually only, the concept evidence-based only hit management relatively late. So if you look at all these other areas, if you do a Google search, look for where the term evidence-based, say, education, first appeared on the web, they're the dates when it first appeared. Management came to this sort of quite late, in a sense. What is it? It's about making decisions through the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of different sorts of information. So conscientious means you try, you make an effort, you do it carefully. Explicit means you write that information evidence down. Judicious means you critically judge it, and then you apply it to your decision making. But also you get evidence from different sources. So the first is your own expertise as a practitioner. The second is the academic and published evidence. The third is evidence from your organizational context. And the fourth is evidence from the people who might be affected by your decision, your clients or patients or whatever, or employees in this case. So for those of you who like diagrams, the idea is the decision gets made at the intersection of those different sources of evidence. So what kind of decisions am I talking about? Well, I'm mostly talking about the kinds of decisions on the right that are in bold. So fairly large decisions, non-programmed, slower, that have resource implications. Because often what people are thinking about at this point is what about gut feel, what about intuition? Isn't that useful? Because it is for some kinds of decisions, but not the ones I'm talking about. And anyway, intuition is just another form of evidence based on experience. And it needs to be subjected to exactly the same kind of rigor as you might any kind of evidence. So that's what I mean by management decisions. So if you were an HR manager and you had a problem with high absence, these are the kinds of questions you might ask around this problem of high absence. You'd ask questions like, I've seen it before, what happened, what do you believe the cause is? You would look at the local context. What actually is the absence rate? Where is it? Is it short term? Is it long term? What's going on in the organization? You'd also then try and find the best available academic evidence about what do we know are the causes of absence? What do we know? What do we know about the main interventions to treat absence? So you look at that, and finally you think about perspectives who are going to be people affected by it. So it's in a way, I'm not going to get into detail, it's fairly kind of straightforward in a way. It's very difficult to do for lots of reasons, but it's not a very complicated idea. So there are lots of myths, uh, I think, and misconceptions that evidence just means scientific evidence. Well, it doesn't. Evidence is a kind of unfortunate word. I think it just means kind of information. And a good analogy, I think, is with legal settings. In a court of law, lots of different kinds of information may count as evidence, from a CCTV camera to forensic stuff to eyewitness testimony. All of it is potentially evidence. People also feel evidence-based practice means practitioners can't use their experience. Well, it doesn't mean that. You, they have to use their experience. That's kind of what we're paying them for. Partly, uh, and also expertise is necessary to apply evidence because evidence kind of doesn't speak for itself. People also think evidence can prove things. Evidence can't prove anything. It just you know, proof is a mathematical or logical kind of concept. It just tells you about probabilities. Also, people think evidence is about truth. As they say, let's not even go there. It is not anything to do with truth. Okay, which is completely different again. People also feel this is quite common in management. The new breakthrough studies provide the best evidence. Uh, no, they don't. It's about the body of evidence. And typically, new breakthrough studies turn out to be absolutely not that new and definitely not very breakthrough. But we're very attracted to those kind of ideas. Practitioners also sometimes find that they, they feel if they collect all the information, out will pop the answer. And that doesn't usually happen. And they get quite disappointed. It's about trying to make evidence-informed decisions and understand what's going on a bit, but it's not about giving the answer. People, again, think that doing evidence-based practice means you just have to do what the research evidence tells you. No, it doesn't mean that. You're making the decision, the evidence isn't, the researchers are making the decision, you are. So the evidence doesn't make the decision for you. People also feel if you don't have the evidence, you can't do anything. Like, you know, I can't get out of bed because I haven't done a randomized control trial. 
You do stuff, but you do it knowing that you don't have the evidence, and that's kind of the difference, in a sense, as opposed to pretending you do. And finally, you know, the very common thing is experts, like consultants or management school professors, know all the evidence, so you just need to ask them. And this is very prevalent in business as well. People think they can go and ask people like me. We know stuff. We've, we've memorized every single published study in the universe and done a meta-analysis in our head. And if there's any question, we just know it all. Of course we don't. And anyway, we're biased. We're incredibly biased. We have vested interest in our expertise. So experts are helpful for some things, but they're not useful for providing evidence in this kind of context. So there's some of the misconceptions. So now I'm going to talk about these four different groups of people whose behavior and rewards, and again, one of the key things is I'm not saying it's all their fault, it's to do with the context they work in, inhibit evidence-based practice, as I've just described. It gets in the way. What they do gets in the way. So how do managers do it? I'm going to go through these in a slightly different way. How do managers do it? Um, I'm not going to talk about that. There's three things, really. I guess there's cognitive biases uh, that shape it. There's fads and fashions, and there's power and politics. I'm going to briefly describe that these are things that shape decisions, not evidence. You how many of you have seen this before, just out of interest? Yeah, so you can't answer this question, right? But actually, even if you have seen it, you might forget. It's a classic kind of, you know it's a trick question. But given it's a trick question, what answer do you want to give? You probably actually know the answer. Okay, you can answer because you know the answer. But what, if you, no, what, what do you think it is? It's five Have you seen this before? Did you do an equation? Damn. Okay. Well, I would have gone with 10 pence. Yes, but you're right, you're right. The, the correct answer is five pence. Everybody wants to say 10 pence. There are lots of examples of these from Kahneman, Kahneman Tversky and Kahneman's recent book, Thinking Fast. And so there's lots of these, but obviously, you know, if you're, you know, some people get it. Yeah, some people get it. So there's cognitive biases which shape it. And there's many other kinds of cognitive biases, uh, like anchoring effects, like restaurant wine lists. If you have expensive wines at one end, it just, it's not, you'll make more money out of wine, not because people buy them, because they see a range and they go, you know, you don't want to be really cheap, so you don't buy the cheapest one. You go kind of two-thirds down, and then you buy that one. So if the end one's more expensive, you'll go further down, is a kind of argument. The anchoring effect, framing effect, and what that is, is it's just a framing effect. So you draw different conclusions from the same information. So if you're buying a ready meal, would you buy one that says, you know, 85% fat-free, or one that says 15% fat? You might go for the fat-free one, but it's the same information. And also, most uh, dangerous, again, this for managers or decision-makers, is the metacognitive bias, the idea we don't have these biases. And certainly, a, uh, people can, for example, this question, people can feel about 70 to 80% of people give the wrong answer. And most of them are extremely confident you know, that they're right. So, and there's only a link between how confident you are and how right you are. So this is another kind of challenge for managers because, you know, they're faced with a lot of decisions and these biases are like to play an amazingly strong role in what they do. So the first thing is those biases. And evidence-based management can help because it forces, or forces, it helps people be more conscientious, conscientious explicit, and judicious in their use of evidence. So it can help overcome that a bit. Fads and fashions, well, fashions are kind of relatively transitory beliefs uh, disseminated by management fashion setters, which in this definition from Abrahamson includes uh, business schools who help disseminate and create these kind of fashions. These are just examples. I'm sure everyone has got their own from their own context, and you know, you can probably be aware of things going on now that may or may not be uh, management fads. Uh, or each fad has to have its book. Okay, it's always the number one best. They look kind of the same. And all these books also, the people who wrote them say the other book's really good. You know, they will kind of self-refer kind of to each other. Yeah. And you said the War for Talent, you may not know that the, uh, the case study organization used in this book, saying this War for Talent concept was great, was actually Enron. 
if, you don't, if you're not aware of that. And it also turns out that in search of excellence, people did look at these companies 10 years later, and none of them are very excellent anymore. But anyway. Okay, so people also studied the trades. So this is an example of the, the peaks and troughs of a fashion cycle. This is quality circles, pr print media indicators. And the idea is they come, they rise and rise and rise, and they just fade away again. They come, they rise and rise, they fade away again. Uh, people also have looked at journal article titles or popular management article titles, and you see this ascendancy. So in the taste, this is again about total quality. Total quality starts off being wave of the future. It's totally radical. When this fad gets mature, it's re-engineering the hot new, new tool, warning this good idea may become a fad beyond the buzzword. And then when it's dropping off again, you get 10 reasons why it doesn't work. The mystique, <laughs> the mistakes, the hocus pocus. And there's quite a lot of research about, specifically about this. And you can imagine can't you, how damaging this is to organizations, to employees, and indeed, it's argued, to national and international economies. Because people pursue these things, sometimes it might work a bit for some organizations, some of the time, but the point is they're over-applied, and there's huge over-claiming about what these things do. So this is, doesn't hear what I say, the main problem is their lack of any solid intellectual foundations. Implicit in each fad is a cause effect statement is rarely made explicit and never supported. These fads make claims they do not support. The other problem is that they've gone to talk about the fact that management needs to evolve a sound body of knowledge in a clear language that will assist members of the profession to reason cogently, think about it, think it through. And what they're arguing is that fads stop people thinking. And I think it's quite a powerful argument. You know? A related concept, I suppose, is a quick fix uh, that may be faddy, it may just be seen, it may not be a fad, but, but it's very much related in terms of management decisions and the way things happen. It's often focused on style, it's not evaluated. It's not as quick as you hope. Um, it also becomes subject to organizational amnesia. Now, some of you may want to think about your kitchen. Uh, you may not, but you think about your kitchen. There's probably a cupboard in your kitchen. In that cupboard, there may be some kitchen equipment that you bought and have not used for quite a long time. And eventually, it's going to end up in a charity shop. I ask you, what is in that cupboard? What's in it? Smoothie maker. Smoothie maker, very good. What else might be in that cupboard? A juicer, yeah, exactly, those kind of things. And what we're doing is, these are sort of quick fixes where we buy things, and actually looking back, you feel like a kind of fool, but you should buy it, you think it's going to work, such as the Jamie Oliver-style pasta maker. You have this fantasy, you're going to be like opening a nice bottle of Chianti and making some tagliatelle, it's going to be fantastic, the doors of it, the birds, you know, and you do it once and it's all right, but it makes a mess and it's not that much better than you just buy in the supermarket anyway, and so it goes into the cupboard. So I think fads and fashions are a bit like this. They're attractive, and they kind of, yeah, promise to do things, I suppose. Another area where you see lots of quick fixes, of course, is the diet industry, and there's tons of examples of this, uh, like drinking coffee and losing weight. Uh, there's actually websites that review diet pills, and they, all, they always seem to give them all very high scores, at least nine, most of them. And what's interesting is that all these, all these, all these kind of things have an ingredient in that seems to have to come from a rainforest. You know? There's nothing in here for, kind of from Somerset, because obviously that's not going to make you slim, but something from a rainforest just might do that. Uh, so you get that, and also the cookie diet. There's actually several cookie diets. <laughs> And also the seven-day belly blast diet. And like consultants who say, look, these are the companies we work with, have to believe this guy because he obviously has been on NBC, for God's sake. So he must be pretty good. Uh, yeah, who would have thought that eating more would flatten your belly? Who indeed? <laughs> the thing about losing weight is that for most people, most of the time, it's actually pretty straightforward. You just eat, you take a few calories and you expend. That's kind of it. 
The problem with that is it takes a very long time, and it's really boring and really hard. Possibly that's what management is like. It's boring and it's hard, and you know what to do, but you don't want to do it, because you'd rather just take a pill, get a fad, do something else. And I think when people, organisations, let's take Gail, for example, some people will go slash this fat, apparently. I hope she lost it as well. But uh, before and after, maybe organisations are thinking of themselves as sort of overweight, flabby, and they've kind of fantasise that they do this thing, they'll end up like Gail on the right. And I think this is a very powerful sort of fantasy that drives some of, some of this fat adoption behaviour. So they promise to deliver a lot and fast. They often appear quite simple. They appear new and shiny. Uh, they're going to make everything all right. They're going to contain anxieties. And the argument is managers are faced with problems that make them extremely anxious. Uh, there's not much they can do about it. They help users feel effective, and it seems very just human to want to find these solutions. You know, it's okay if you buy a Jamie or other pasta maker that you don't really use much and stick in the cupboard. If you're, you know, CEO or director of HR, and you spend a huge amount of money on coaching or leadership development, and it's nonsense. That kind of does matter. And this is, the, but people applying almost the same decision-making to those, and it seems to me, as they do to buying a pasta maker. Um, and also evidence-based management, you may be wondering, is it a fad? Well, no, it isn't. Because evidence-based management... Uh, it won't necessarily deliver a lot. It's certainly not necessarily fast. It's, it is simple. It's not new. Using evidence is not new at all. Uh, it won't make everything all right. It might make you feel more anxious. As you find out what you know and don't know, you may realise you're pretty stupid, which is about right for most of us, because we are, kind of. Uh, and it may, but, you know, it seems very human to say. Evidence-based practice can help because it does this, and it maybe makes people think a bit more about the fads they're adopting. Any of you ever bought a banana guard? <laughs> no? None of you, I can't believe it. Yeah, do you use it? I do. You still use it? I do, yes. Every day? No, not every day. Okay. Anyone else? It's fairly recent purchase. Fairly recent purchase, okay. Yeah. You weren't an early adopter like me. <laughs> just to prove that I'm not... Because I'm not saying... Of course, I'm just... I'm, I am human as well. And I, and I bought one of these. bought several of these. Because I thought they were a great kind of laugh. And I thought they were good. And I thought, yeah, that's right. Bananas. I need a banana guard for my bananas. Okay? Uh, and what I kind of realised after a while is I used it maybe once or twice. And then just stopped using it. Because there's a number of issues here. Firstly, I don't think I've ever actually had a problem with squash bananas. <laughs> yeah, I don't... This defined a new problem for me. So I never had a problem with squash bananas, but I thought I needed one of these to kind of stop the problem I didn't have. The other thing I've realized is because I've never generally in my daily life, I've never, I think, more than about 20 metres away from a banana. You know, I don't, I don't hike across Dartmoor. I'm near an urban context with Tesco metros, so I can get bananas anywhere. So why did I buy this? It's a kind of complete waste of money. If you go on Amazon and you look at these are the things, people that bought the banana guy <laughs> also bought these things. And this is really what came up when I, when I searched right again. They buy the fruit. Anyone got fruity face, face inflatable fruit? No? Okay, so, so what this suggests to me, what this suggests to me is that people have a kind of general anxiety about squash fruit. <laughs> I'm thinking bullying, playground experience, school bus, maybe something bad happened. They just generally quite like bananas. And they're kind of anxious because they need to relieve their stress while squeezing a banana. But it's just an, an everyday example, which I think is, is sort of very analogous to the other stuff I'm talking about. Power policies and careers. Why else do managers do things? Okay, they could be cognitive, it could be for other reasons. But uh, do people get to where they are, to positions of senior in power, because they do what works? Well, maybe, but given there's so few valuations of anything in organisations, it's not really clear. Do, do they get where they are by getting things done? Probably. 
Is it about not rocking the boat? Yeah, probably. Do they work hard? Yeah, absolutely, probably. Uh, do they have a strong need for achievement recognition? Definitely. Uh, do they obey orders? Probably most of the time. Do they solve problems? Yeah, but often, you know, presenting or political problems. And is it about making the bosses look good? Yes, partly. That's why people get to the top. And also covering the back. So there's lots of reasons why people might get ahead in many organisations. But again, not many of them are to do with the use of evidence. And talking about the Colvin writing of Fortune magazine, talking about conventional ideas, and by that I mean fads, things that are conventional at the moment, it says, never see the power of any big managerial idea. It may be smart-like quality or stupid-like conglomeration. Either way, if everybody's doing it, the pressure to do it too is immense. If it turns out to be smart, great. If it turns out to be stupid, well, you're in good company, most likely end up no worse off than your competitors. Your boards consist mostly of CEOs or in your competitors' company anyway. The true value of conventional wisdom is not that it's wise or dumb, but that it's conventional. It makes some of the hardest jobs in the world, managing an organization, a little easier. By following it, managers everywhere see a way to drag their sorry behinds through another quarter without getting fired. Isn't that really what it's all about? So this is the adoption of conventional things or fads as a defensive technique. If everyone else is doing something, yeah, I better do it too, because there might be something in it, and if I'm not doing it, then I could get into trouble. So again, not more of what works. Speed and accuracy is probably valued more highly. Managing and understanding power and politics is probably more important in many organizations or in terms of getting things done. And people have suggested it may be too late for existing very senior people in organizations. They might not, might not get or might not like this evidence-based stuff because they, that's not how they got there. And in fact, they may feel kind of quite threatened by it. So there's an argument it will take a new generation of people coming through to do that. Uh, and still a classic paper, the folly of rewarding A while hope, hoping for B, which sums up actually this whole talk in a way. Uh, it's axiomatic that those who care about a firm's well-being should insist that the organisation get fair value for its expenditures. Yet it is commonly known the firms seldom bother to evaluate a new programme. Why? One major reason is that those responsible for conducting such evaluations are the same ones often charged with introducing the change. The last thing many desire is a formal revealing evaluation. Although members of top management may actually hope for such systematic valuation, their reward systems continue to reward ignorance. So, and again, evidence-based management may help, but the power of politics, obviously, is, is, is very difficult to overcome. Okay, now it's the consultant's turn, uh, and I'll only keep this fairly brief. What do consultants do? And this is you know, controversial, and it's not clear always what they do. They could be translators of evidence. And it's surprising to me how many managers think that's what consultants do, uh, generally, they don't, because they don't even subscribe to things that would let them get access to journal evidence. Anyway, uh, are they brokers or sellers of fads? Probably. Some are. Are they external objective advisors? Absolutely. Yes, they can be that. Are they repositories of experience and wisdom? Again, some consultants are that as well. They have one of those areas of experience that you may not have as a manager, so they can do that as well. And are there ways of maybe justifying unpopular decisions? So they serve a range of different purposes. Pfeffer and Sutton are quite hard on this. They say consultants and others who sell ideas and techniques are always rewarded for getting work. Think of that as the incentive system. If you're always rewarded for getting work, you will try and get work, because that's what you get rewarded for. Only sometimes rewarded for doing good work and hardly ever rewarded for whether their advice actually enhances performance. And they go on to say the incentive is even more perverse, because if a client company's problems are only partly solved, that leads to more work. So it's just setting up this perverse kind of incentive. So for some kinds of consultancies, uh, if the, if the incentive is to get work, get more work, and keep getting work, uh, it depends entirely on what clients want and what you can persuade them they want. So you persuade clients they need a new thing, you sell them that product or service or intervention, you keep doing it, you saturate the market so everyone who's going to buy it has got it, and then you need to have a new thing, because everyone's got the old thing, so you need a new thing. So you invent a new thing, 
you sell it, you push it, you saturate the market, oh no, now we need another new thing. So that helps drive some of the fads behind management. So why in general do managers eat? Well, because their decisions are shaped by these cognitive bias, fads and fashions, power and politics, and the role of consultants in that as well. And the view is evidence-based management might help that. Okay, so now this is where for some of us in the room, including me, it gets a bit more sensitive. Uh, or should I say more sensitive? Okay, so um, what do management educators do? I'm not going to say me or we, because I'm just, I'm just, but it does include me. Educators don't train managers how to be evidence-based practitioners. There is a view. They teach fads and fashions rather than critical thinking. Educators are not particularly evidence-based in their own practices in terms of education. An educate like this, this is a really bad way of learning anything. Welcome to the lecture. Educators are not particularly evidence-based. So an educators focus on student outcomes that detract from evidence-based teaching. So that, they're the points I'm going to make briefly. Is evidence-based management taught? A survey of MBA programs done a few years ago in the States found, and they went through every single syllabus of the core components of an MBA, found that only 0.24% included the term evidence-based management. So not really. They might be, and they might be calling it something else, but it doesn't appear to be the case. People also compared what managers say they need to do their work with what is taught on MBAs and other business school courses in terms of the proportion of content. And just one thing, if people say what they need, they need a lot of this, which is management of decision-making processes, MDP, and this is what they get. And it's one of the biggest kind of gaps between what managers say they need to help them do what they get at business schools, and obviously that's linked to evidence-based practice. Grain is quite hard on this. He says, we allowed management schools them to believe any famous manager or consultant to be believed when he or she pontificates about an ego-based management theory and the false assertion that their first-hand experience is better than evidence-based management. We as management faculty have to bear most of the blame for being led astray by listening to our students' pleas to avoid EBM and to require course readings of the popular management gurus, even though we knew that their so-called popular research was flawed. After all, we received better course evaluations from that. Okay, you know what I'm talking about, some of you. Let us teach our management students that the theory of the month does not deserve to be taken seriously. Uh, Fried Vermeulen, again writing the FT from the Business School, talked about how there's often a very big gap between what management academics research and what they actually put into the classroom. There's this very big gap. He says his argument is often fads are taught instead of research. Critical thinking is not taught much. There's a very heavy use of textbooks and pre-digested information. There's little use of primary sources of research or evidence or theory uh, and, and critical appraisal or something. And this is very much like the give a man or woman a fish thing and they can eat or they can be whatever for an hour or two hours. Depends how big the fish is and how hungry they are, I suppose. But they can live for a while, teach them to fish, and they can you know, eat forever. And this is the argument about evidence-based practice, evidence-based teaching. It's much more important, in our view, is to teach people critical thinking than teach them content areas. Because once they've understood critical thinking, they can learn anything because they've got the tools to do it. This is kind of the, one of the issues, I think. Uh, the skills of doing literature reviews are not particularly taught. A methodological understanding is focused very much on collecting new data rather than evaluating existing data. And also, a study by Aram and Roska found that business students had relative the lowest increases in the US of critical thinking. So if you compare it across faculties, obviously most students increase their critical thinking as measured by a standard measure a bit. Business school students were the lowest of, of any kind of faculty. And interesting, I was looking for it. The book's called Academically Adrift. And I was looking for a quote from the book on Google. And what came up was this page, which is actually one of these pages that sells you essays. 
Okay? And I thought, well, no wonder in business, I'm just no wonder business school, you're not very critical, because, you know, they can buy all this stuff online. So, yeah. Okay, um, teaching perhaps is not very evidence-based. And these are some examples from Goodman O'Brien. And they talk about how these taken-for-granted strategies uh, that are supposed to be effective are not and are counterproductive. Things like what we often do as educators, we make things less cognitively demanding by simplifying content. You know, lists, bullet points, three ways to remember this. This is not good for learning. Uh, we, we sign activities because they're enjoyable without assessing learning outcomes. You know, we want, our, you know, it's edutainment very often. We want our teaching to be enjoyable, you know, but that's got nothing to do with learning. Uh, providing more feedback and guidance than is truly needed. Again, that's not actually very useful for learning. Also, another outcome, uh, focusing often on just one and the wrong outcome, student satisfaction. I mentioned learning is not necessarily pleasant or satisfying, particularly in the short term. If you feel anxious and upset and confused, again, that's right. That's not a bad thing. That is right. That means you're learning something. Uh, or you're just depressed or something. But generally, it means you're learning something. Student satisfaction is being important, but can students judge satisfaction of the quality of the education they receive? Many of you are aware of the National Student Survey and this item overall, I'm satisfied with the quality of the course. I don't know what that means. Does anyone know what it means? But it's incredibly important and significant in the way we manage universities and do things. What is the link between student satisfaction and performance? There isn't much evidence about this. Not that I could find. Uh, is it because you give people higher grades to say they're more satisfied, or are they more satisfied because they get higher grades, or just more satisfaction? We don't really like, like job satisfaction and performance. It's very hard to untangle what the relationship might be. But uh, one study done, I think it was out of the LSC, looked at the NSS scores. Uh, they say here, contrary to what many university managers might think, the effect of changes in NSS scores on demand for places is small. The argument is you make university students more satisfied, you get more demand. That's one of the reasons for doing it, not the only one. And moving from the bottom of the scale, where it's around 65% satisfaction, so the worst universities, around 65%, to the top of the scale, 95%, will only result in a degree course gaining about seven more applications for every hundred it receives. So it makes a difference but not very much. So what are we chasing around? What, what, what is this for? What is it for exactly? Uh, the relentless ran, rating and ranking of our work, and even more particularly our schools, attempts to shine these appraisals distracts from the real work of scholarship. The dominating presence of perceived capriciousness and superficiality of rankings has driven business schools towards a focus on image management, oftentimes at the expense of substantive program improvement. The essential argument is that because the rankings emphasize criteria that are not necessarily germane to a quality education, they force business schools to devote resources to enhancing their standing on those criteria at the expense of genuine educational criteria. By the way, these quotes are not from crazy radicals. These are mostly published in the Academy of Management, Learning and Education. So this is mainstream minority view, as it were. Maybe it's majority view. So that's educators. Finally, uh, management researchers. Uh, how do they maybe inhibit or get in the way of evidence-based practice? Um, some of you know this, I know some of you don't, but the main thing that drives what academics do research-wise is referee journal articles. And the way it works is you submit an article, you either get a desk reject or it goes through a reviewing process. You get it back, <coughs> the reviewers say you need to do more stuff, you know, blah, 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 blah. And this can happen lots and lots and lots of times. It's completely soul-destroying and, and kind of, you know, horrible and vacuous and everything else. But it's very important. Good journals often have an 80% plus rejection rate. Good journals have a high impact factor, that's what that means in a minute. And research publishing good journals is seen as better research. Okay, so it's all a bit kind of circular. This is the kind of thing some of you in this room are going to be very familiar with. This is from the Association of Business School. Now, some of you don't need to see this. You're probably already it's on your, it's burned onto your retinas. 
this is, uh, and some of you I know are probably counting your points already when you see this. Uh, this is for those people who don't know this strange system. This is the Associated Business School Journal Rankings. And these are the ones that they think are four or three. So one, two, three, four. Fours and threes are the only things that are probably going to count in the next assessment exercise we're having. So everyone's very interested in, 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 and interested, anxious, concerned, bothered. Or, you know, I've got my four fours, I've got my seven fours. And you now get the, the ridiculous situation. The people who've got their four fours are deliberately holding back research until the next period because they want to make it for the next one. So that's really good for science, isn't it? People just don't publish stuff. Brilliant. Well done. Well done, everybody. Okay, so uh, the obsession with rankings, uh, research publications are judging in relation to this, and have a very large effect on salary, promotion, mobility, and professional staff. I mean, a very large effect. Very large. We've got double salaries, potentially. So big, big difference. And also universities, of course, and the schools and departments are judged by these journal articles and where they're published. This is from last time research assessment exercise. It ranks universities, okay? And then it, within it, it also ranks schools of business and management. <coughs> so everyone's very aware of the standing in, in this thing. And it's based on other things, but a lot of it is on those journal articles. Uh, Adam and Harzing say it's not just that journal ranking systems are inconsistent, volatile, in many ways inherently unfair. It's also that motivation systems they engender, including encouraging blatant individual self-interest and a consequent lack of loyalty to any particular university or a broader societal message. They undermine the very essence of good scholarship. Uh, Lawrence talks about these ranking sciences have been forced to downgrade their primary aim for making discoveries to publishing as many papers as possible and trying to work them into high-impact factor journals. Scientific behavior has become distorted and the utility, quality, and objectivity of articles has deteriorated. Changes to the way scientists are assessed are urgently needed. And again, creative discoveries not helped by measures that select for tough fighters and against more reflexive, modest people. Of course, the argument is that that's possibly gendered as well. So... How can editors increase their journal's impact factor? Well, if you're uh, into impact factors, you want impact factor basically means how often in, the in a journal are the papers published in it in a given period being cited anywhere else. So it indicates the use, I guess, of, of the articles published in it. So uh, in a, in a survey done by uh, Will Hyatt and Fong last year, 19% of authors experienced coercion. That's the editor basically saying, thank you very much, thank you for your paper. We're now just about ready to accept it in this very good journal that will guarantee your career for the next three years. By the way, before you publish it, if you, could you include a few more references to our journal in it? 19% you know, said it happened, 86% thought it was inappropriate behaviour, but also 57% said they still add superfluous citations. So even when people are writing the journal article, it's going to be sub and submitted to the British Journal of Management, you think, Christ, I better put some things in from the British Journal of Management before I send it off, even if they're not relevant. So it's just game-playing because of the kind of incentives. Uh, published research is not even actually used much by other researchers, never mind uh, academics or practitioners. So I mentioned the impact factor. If you look at, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of journals, business journals, okay? If you look at the top 174, okay, which appear on Web of Science, used to be called the Social Science Citation Index, these ones have the highest impact factor out of all of them, okay? On average, what's the medium, Journals in this list have an impact factor over two years of 1.26. That means, on average, the 174 best management journals there are, within those, on average, papers are cited 1.2 times over two years. So basically, it's not really being used very much, and it's 1. Point whatever six, eight over five years. So a lot of this—that's an average. So it means obviously stuff is getting more, but a lot of stuff is never used at all. 
Imagine a big warehouse. It's empty. Yeah? Academics are publishing papers and they're just shoving them into this warehouse. Right? And eventually it gets quite full. And then sometimes, and then I can oh yeah, I think there's that paper published by, I might cite it. Not very often, on average, only 1.68 times over five years. And then again, someone goes to get the paper, they read it, go, thanks very much, and they put it back. Yeah? So it's not being used, it's just stuff. And also, it's locked up. If you're not an academic, this stuff is actually locked. It's not used much by practitioners. If you try and buy it, some of you, I'm sure, how do you get to a you know, paywall and you have to kind of buy it? And just out of interest, I looked at some of my articles. I mean, seriously, $42 for that crap. I mean, <laughs> really, absolutely not worth it. And you have to pay for it. And interestingly, if you look at that, look at, um, this is Wiley's pricing policy. Everything costs $42. Um, doesn't matter if it's an old classic in an attic, uh, yeah? or it doesn't matter if it's a four-page journal article, as this one is, it's still $42. So anyway, does anybody want to read this stuff? This is one of the questions. Uh, and this is from Al. Someone often hears and sometimes reads academics find journal publications generally uninteresting, and the primary motive for reading them is one has to in order to get one's own work published. They're not fun. They're not interesting on the whole. Where, when are we as an academic body going to recognize that the problem is not more publication for the sake of more publication? There are more unqualified people pumping more crap into more unread outlets than ever before in history. Now, that's a strong view. I don't quite agree with Jax, because a lot of those people are actually qualified. <laughs> and if you want an even more depressing view of higher education than mine, uh, this book actually goes into a lot, a lot more detail than I'm about the way which higher education has kind of become a business. So academics also get in the way because they don't, or because they don't tend to do systematic reviews. These research and existing research, and without these, it's hard to do evidence-based practice. If you're a manager and you want to know what's the evidence on how you manage absence from work, can I just get a good full-page, objectively done, relative objective summary of this to help make it? No, you can't get it. You can find out reviews of films really easily. You can't get anything else uh, that's actually useful in that sense. So researchers are mostly rewarded in trying to do new research, systematic reviews, and reviews in general are not seen as proper research. The only real research is going out to collect new data, sort of. And you also see this expression at the start of journal articles, because that's where most reviews take place. They're short, and they justify a new piece of empirical research. You see really weird statements like, previous studies have shown. It has been demonstrated. No, it's just kind of meaningless. Like how many studies? How many studies did not show that? You know, it just doesn't mean anything, but it's completely accepted as a way of you know, reviewing literature to justify what you're doing. There is a dearth of evidence. Well, is there, where does dearth come from? You know, who, who uses the word dearth apart from academics at the front of articles? You, know, you don't get to the fridge and say, gosh, there's a dearth of milk. I'm going to pop to the shop. It's really, I don't know why this word is there. Poor scientific practices, and this has been studied quite a lot. So things like publication of data, established effects smaller, publication bias, we'll go in a minute. Uh, hypotheses are always supported, and it's getting more. I can't give an example of that. Harking, hypothesizing after the results are known. You collect some data, you test the things you thought were in there, they're not there, so what do you think? Oh, what can we do with the data? Let's invent some new questions that we can get a positive answer with. And that's very common. It's completely routine practice by not only authors, but also journal editors and journal reviews. They help you do it. Make stuff up. Make, pretend you're researching this, and then you'll get the right answer. Okay? It's just odd. Not, not good. Uh, but Ian did a survey of management and asked said people, have you ever observed or heard about faculty engaging in these behaviours in business and management schools? And just things like, 
Harking, hypothesized results on a 91% are doing that kind of thing. Selectively only using the data to support hypothesis, but held the rest, 77. You know, very poor scientific practice on the whole. So the demands for novelty and positive results creates incentives for generating new ideas, rather than pursuing additional evidence for or against ideas, reporting positive results and ignoring negative results, pursuing design, reporting, analysis strategies, increase the likelihood of obtaining a positive result to achieve publishability. This paints a bleak picture of the incentive structure in science. So it's very hard to publish negative results. And you don't have to be, you know, understanding that science is about publishing everything you've got. It's kind of basic, I suppose. So I think there's espoused goals and explicit goals. Espoused goals are these. Yeah, to advance understanding for research, focus on important, being honest about evidence, disseminating it, the high kind of worthy ideals of science and researchers. And then there's implicit goals around advancing career, doing whatever it takes to get you published not publishing replications, finding new trendy topics, exaggerating how much you know. So there's these different espoused and, I guess, actual goals or values that seem to drive behavior. This is quite amazing. This is an analysis, amazing. This analysis done from 90, uh, 1990 to 2007, looking at the percentage of hypotheses that have been supported in published journal articles. And it's gone up, on average, from 70% to 86%. What's going on? What is happening? I mean, we can't just go, but you know, what is going on? Do you think, eventually, do you think you won't need to do any more research ever? Because actually, all you have to do is research it, just think what the answer is, and you're probably right. <laughs> so, fantastic, yeah? You don't need research councils anymore, or any, you know, because obviously you'll just kind of be right. And this is when you look at, this is the uh, positive results by discipline. You can see psychology is quite high, relatively. Economics of business is quite high. You know, the space science people are really kind of honest about, you know, <laughs> relatively about what's going on in their discipline. And this has been taught, and the issue of replication, it's very hard to publish replications. This is an economist actually last week was reporting this, saying the difficulty of publishing them, and it, when you do publish replications, it's often really hard to repeat previous findings. Uh, an economist leader last week said, too many findings are shoddy, careerism, Approved hypotheses are rarely even offered for publication, and the process of peer review is quite questionable as well. So this is even a sort of mainstream place like the economy is talking about this. And people are concerned about retractions. There's a website now called Retraction Watch. When people have done studies that turn out to be flawed, one of the issues is it's the, the journal might acknowledge it, but it's in tiny, tiny, tiny writing, sometimes only in the print version. So people don't know that published studies have turned out to be wrong, or flawed, or based on unreliable data. They're still there still kind of used. So, evidence-based practice about using more evidence, it isn't happening much, mainly because people are rewarded for doing other things, and as so often happens, the indicators become the target. So, concluding questions you may have, uh, and this, we don't have Q&As in orbitals, but uh, I'll give you my contact details at the end. Where is my positive, upbeat message? Did, did you, can you guess if there is one? I was thinking about it for years, and I still haven't been able to think of one. Uh, but do you expect, you know, you might be thinking, do you expect me to take anything seriously? But suppose you want to do something different, what can I do? Okay, let's deal with the, the positive, upbeat message. <laughs> Everything's all right. Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah? Okay, so that's my positive, upbeat message at the end. Uh, what can you do? There's lots of things you can do. I mean, I think it's sort of quite obvious. It's like losing weight. It's kind of obvious but the difficulty is, is actually kind of doing it. It depends how bothered you are and if incentives can be changed. I think one way of doing it, quite simply, is to keep asking why quite a lot. It annoys the hell out of people. It will be career limiting, but it's quite useful. I think it's quite a useful function to do. 
You can also check out the Centre of Evidence-Based Management. Uh, this is kind of interesting. Uh, Jane mentioned at the beginning, it is kind of connected with a few universities, but actually it's sort of an independent organisation. It's interesting that uh, an organisation dedicated to promoting evidence-based management, this is our mission, has had to be set up outside a university, which you think about is nuts. It's absolutely, the reason has, because the incentive system doesn't reward this activity. So all the stuff I do with the centres have nothing to do with my real job. It's other stuff I do. So that, but that's where we've kind of got to for some reason. Now, uh, I was talking to Eric, who's here. He's actually the manager of the Centre for Evidence Based Management. I was talking, I said, I can't think of how to conclude. He said, well, why don't you look at the evidence about persuasion? Now, you persuade people. Because, OK, right. So I looked at some of the evidence about uh, how you're supposed to persuade people of your messages. Most of this is messages around products and things like, should you... In, in a hotel, should you throw your towel on the floor to signal you don't want to use it, you hang it up again. So it's not about a more complicated message like this, but this is what you're supposed to do. It's supposed to engender reciprocity, okay? So you owe me, yeah? You owe me, I'm kind of working, you owe me, maybe. Uh, commitment consistency, and the idea is if I get you all to say, yeah, we agree, Rob, you're more likely to do something about it. I'm not going to get you to do that, don't worry. Social proof, now this is one of the problems, are others doing it? This is, this is, this is the problem. It doesn't matter for the people doing it. You know, this, so this, these techniques of persuasion are actually drawing right in to the cognitive biases I was talking earlier. You know, if they're doing it, it must be good. It's not really the point. Liking, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm nice, aren't I? But it doesn't matter if you like me. I just don't think it, you know, it shouldn't matter. Authority, then you get the problem. People trust uh, messages that are given by an authority figure. And, that, and I'm trying to say don't trust authority figures in this context. It's not kind of relevant. And also the idea of scarcity, quick, evidence-based practice right now is supposed to persuade this message more attractive. So although I did try and look at the evidence in this context, putting together me, you know, the stakeholders, my own experience, and all the rest of it, this evidence actually wasn't very useful to me in this context. But I kind of had a quick look. So I'm not sure I can or want to persuade you in this particular way, because it's actually, again, drawing those cognitive biases and authority biases I'm trying to get away from. It's kind of up to you if you're interested, obviously, or not, but within very, very large constraints. Uh, thank you very much. If you've got any questions or comments, please email me. Thank you. <laughs>